All right, so a neologism is a new word or phrase. Now, interestingly, A, it can be, of course, a completely new word. Right? You create a new word, a new word is out there, and that's a neologism. The other way that something can be a neologism is if it is a word that has been around for a while but now has a completely new meaning. That's also a neologism. All right? So first of all, it can be a brand new word, something that's just been created, or it can be a word that's been around for a long time and now has a completely new meaning. That's a neologism. All right? So neologisms are part of every language, and it is part of the, uh, the idea that a language is alive, that it is living and breathing, and that it is doing well. Right? If a language stops having neologisms, it's dead. So for example, we say that Latin is a dead language. Okay? Why is Latin a dead language? First of all, why is Latin a dead language? Yep. What's that? In what way, though? Because, I mean, they use Latin in science and things like that, so it's used, but what kind of use do we mean? It's not used in, like, everyday conversation. It's not like a culture, there's no culture that, like, uses it for their main language. There you go. No one speaks it as their first language. No one speaks it. It's not being used on the day-to-day -day basis. So it's not evolving. It's not changing, which is exactly why... Latin is used for science because there are no new meanings being associated with those words. Because remember, a neologism can be an established word that now has a new meaning. You go through the dictionary, right? And you look up a word and it has a whole bunch of definitions because the word has changed or even has multiple definitions. So Latin being a dead language, the definitions are written in essence, in, and actually in reality, written in stone. Because they're not changing. So, for example, what is the Latin word for cell phone? I'm going to guess it doesn't exist. There you go. Why? There were no cell phones when Latin speakers were actually speaking it. Certainly, we could come up with something. You're like, well, the Latin word for phone is this, and the Latin word for this is... But that's... No, that's not a word in Latin for a cell phone, or a car. What's the Latin term for automobile? We don't have one, all right? In the sense that Latin doesn't have one because nobody was speaking Latin when those were invented. So it can be inventions is another way in which we get neologisms, for example, all right? But it, it's about this concept, and here's the concept that really starts feeding into the idea of neologisms. is this concept of a lexical gap. All right? Lexical has to do with words. All right? So a lexical gap means there's a gap in the words. In other words, we have something, something comes along, and we don't have a word for it. So, nine times out of ten, a lexical gap gets filled naturally. People come up with a word for this new thing, and then... We call it whatever. Actually, most of the time what happens is there's a whole bunch of words that start getting used. And then over time, most of those words fall away and we're left with like the one word that ends up sticking around. That's how it works. So lexical gaps are when there is something that we don't have a word for. 
there are some persistent lexical gaps out there. Um, here's one for you. This one's a pretty famous lexical gap. Uh, I love this concept, by the way. Just you're going to have to indulge in me geeking out a little bit about linguistics here. Um, let me start off with a question. What do you call a child who has lost both of his parents? What, what do you call that child? An orphan, right? Okay, so we have a word for that. All right, great. All right. What do you call a parent who all of his children have died? No, he had children. Come <laughs> <Cone> sad. <laughs> that, no, that's when your children go off to school and they were still alive. <laughs> it's a lexical gap. There have been a bunch of words that have been introduced, like people have tried to come up with a word, but it's such a sensitive, emotional kind of state, and we just haven't come up with a word for that yet. So that's a lexical gap. Um, okay, here's another interesting thought. Uh, let's say that a man, a married man, is having an affair with a woman who is obviously not his wife. Okay? And so, what is the word for that woman? Polite word. What is the polite word for that woman? All right, she is his mistress. Mistress. All right, all right, great. Perfect. Okay, good. Right? <clears throat> Mistress is the, is the classical term in that sense, right? Married man, the woman that he has an affair with is his mistress. Okay. A married woman has an affair with a man who is not her husband. What is the word for the man who is having an affair with a married woman? Adulterer. Adulterer. Nope. <laughs> Adulterer is not the specific term. Adulterer is anyone who is having an affair in a marriage, to commit adultery. You can be an adulterer. Third party? <laughs> Third party, no. <laughs> Mantris. Mattress. <laughs> so far we got mantris, mattress, mistress. He's mysterious. He's mysterious. <laughs> there is no word. It's a lexical gap. We don't have a word for it. And sometimes what's really interesting about lexical gaps is that it gives you a hint about the culture. It gives you a hint about the society. We have lots of words. It's interesting, coming back to when I said polite, right? We have lots of words for a woman who is having an affair with a married man. And a lot of them are derogatory. They are, right? What about the derogatory terms for a man who's having an affair with a married woman? We don't have any, we're near as many. 
Or you just say ma'am. But it's not the same. It's not the same. If you have to just say, well, he's a man. And, and even then, let's even think about one, like, homewrecker. Right? The term homewrecker, the term homewrecker would be applied to a woman who is having an affair with a married man. She's a homewrecker. Right? But what about a man who's having an affair with a married woman? Is he going to be called a homewrecker? So there are a lot of stigmas in our culture for a woman in that situation, but we don't have the same stigmas for a man. There are a whole lot of terms. And this is what I mean. Like Lexical gaps can sometimes give you insight into a particular culture. Because here's, here's a simple phrase that I really want you to remember. It's a simple phrase that has really profound implications. Our words define our world. Aren't you right? Because it has everything to do with today's topic of the day as well. Our words define our world. Because the way we speak about the world is the way that we experience the world. Because words are our way of translating our experience to others. That's, how, that's what they're there for. Like when I experience something, I use words to try and convey what is happening, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, all those types of things. Right? So, once again, it's a simple phrase, but it has extremely profound implications. Our words define our world. When you listen to the way someone speaks, you get a very intimate understanding of how that person views the world, how that person experiences the world. Right? Which is why when people use terminology or language or things like that, and we say, oh, well, that person is. Insert thing. So if somebody uses a racially derogatory term, we would say that that individual is a racist because that's how they're defining their world. Make sense? So, in society, we have certain aspects like these things where a woman who is involved with a married man, there's all sorts of negative terms for her. What is the negative term for the man in that situation? The married man. Do we have any negative terms for him that are specifically for a man? Not some word that was used for a woman, but now is being applied to a man. Right? He's a man slut. No, that doesn't work. Because that's not how that is. Right? But a woman who is cheating on her husband, there's all sorts of derogatory words. Profane words, even. That are associated with that. But we don't have them for men. Like what? Right, now that one is a particular, now that's a neologism, right, because it's one of those words that started to come into the language recently, within the last mm, five years at the most, something like that. And that word's interesting because as a neologism, we're still trying to figure out what that word means. Yeah, it's used in several ways. Exactly, because it's a neologism. Nobody, nobody has a, a hard, firm idea of exactly what that word means because it's still being mm, figured out. 
Like, what does that mean? Could it be a derogatory term? Could it be some sort of more crude kind of term for some sort of friend with benefits or da 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 Right? Like, people are trying to figure out what does that word mean. But it's not specifically going to be a derogatory term for a man who's engaging in a, this extramarital sexual affair. So neologisms and lexical gaps in particular can teach you a lot about language. Now, let's get into some other fun ones. Uh, let's see. So neologisms. Uh, selfie. Right? Is a recent within the last, when I say recent, I mean last five, ten years at the most, right? And selfie really is about the last five years or so. That word is going to stick around for a long time. Most neologisms, they blow up for a little while, and then they go away. It's, it's almost like, you know, evolutionary patterns, right? You know, Cambrian period type thing. You guys know about the Cambrian period? You talk about evolutionarily speaking, like the Cambrian period, it was just like all sorts of wild creatures and everything like that, and then most all of them disappeared. Right? You can look, look it up online. There were some really, really, really bizarre creatures. Right? And then they disappeared because evolutionarily it didn't work out. So uh, neologisms, just come and they go. But selfie is one of those ones that's going to stick around because it, it fills a lexical gap. Right? Because we didn't have a word for this because it was not an action up until about five years ago. Right? So in my generation, when we were growing up, we had, we had film cameras, right? And you had a finite, first of all, you had to pay for the film. Then you had a finite number of shots. And then you had to pay to get them developed. And then you would finally see what happened. Okay? So taking a selfie was not really common. Because selfies <clears throat> are hit and miss at best. Which is why <clears throat> some of you may note that when you're taking a selfie, you take a whole lot of them. A whole lot of them. And then you move it around a little bit, change your head, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, then there's the lighting. Don't even get me started on the filters, right? You got to do this, you got to make sure your skin's like this, you know, not like down like this, so you don't look all fat. You know, all these other things <laughs> that you got to do. You got to do this, you got to, are you looking at the camera, looking away? You're going to use like that, what is that, that little, there's like this little baby thing or whatever, and when you glance at it, it automatically takes the picture exactly when you look at the camera, so you can get that exact moment, so you're not like staring weirdly at the camera. There's so many things. Anyway, <laughs> oh, there are lots of things out there for this. Because we can do that now because we have unlimited, for all intents and purposes, we have unlimited ability to take photos. You can take as many selfies as you want, and then you can nitpick every single one because it's developing right there in front of you. And that really only started happening as well when we had front-facing cameras. Even when the first digital cameras, you would, sell, you would take it, and then you'd have to stop, and you'd have to turn around, and, you'd have to, and then you'd have to zoom in because you couldn't really see the photo very well. and then, It really wasn't a thing still yet. But as soon as you got front-facing cameras, and now you can sit there and you can compose it as you're doing it, then it becomes like a whole thing. And then the abomination of the selfie stick. So, you know, there's like <laughs> one. <laughs> right? But selfie filled a lexical gap, and it's going to stay, because we, we, we've decided, like, that's the word for it. And until people stop taking them, we need that word. So selfie is going to stay around for a long, long time. 
until people stop being mildly you know, narcissistic and stop taking selfies. Mildly narcissistic. It is a mildly narcissistic endeavor. Don't take that as some sort of insult. I have taken plenty of selfies myself, and they are always a mildly narcissistic endeavor. Because it's just like, oh, wow, look, I want to get my picture in with whatever I'm taking a photo of. Like, I want to be next to Yosemite. I was on my road trip, you know, and then behind me is Half Dome, which is an extremely famous rock formation in Yosemite. And I'm sitting there trying to take a selfie, and I'm moving <laughs> myself, and I'm trying to get the right angle, you know, and all this other stuff. So it, it's mildly narcissistic. Mild narcissism is fine. Full-blown narcissism is a whole other story. Okay? So until people stop having that tendency, we're going to need the word selfie. Making sense? All right, so those are words that have been created in some way. There's lots of them. Portmanteaus are my favorite. We'll talk about those in a second. Um, what about established words, words that have been around for a long time but now have a completely new meaning? What's an example of one that might be a current example in that sense? What might be a current example? Fortnite, all right? A word that had been around for a very long time, meaning two weeks. A fortnight. You'll, you'll see it in Shakespeare. Now everything <laughs> Now, as a name of a game, it has taken on a new meaning, and now it's going to, it's, it's coming into other meanings as well because of the cultural phenomena of the game. And so it will take on different meanings. But, exactly, Fortnite is now a term completely distant from its original term of two weeks. A fortnight. Okay? Yep. Oh, gay. gay has been one that has it's changed and it's now, as a neologism, it became associated with homosexuality. Right? So, it, gaiety, being gay, was happy. And... So that it was actually rooted in some stereotypes of what perceived behaviors of gay homosexual men would be like. And then another aspect called reappropriation, where you take something and you own it. It's a different story altogether. It became something like, yes, I am gay. And then it became now more closely associated with male homosexuals. Right? Which is why it's LGBTQ. Right? So lesbian being female homosexuals. Gay, being male, homosexuals, LGB, bisexual, you figure that one out. Transsexual, you figure that one out. Queer, someone who is non-normative in the sense of the gender binary and does not want to be associated with either lesbian or gay. And so that's queer and or the queer uh, community. So that's why queer is in there. And that being a word that used to be associated with being weird or different. A queer feeling, for example. And so it was also a derogatory term that was used toward people within that community. And then it has been reappropriated and now it has been turned around and owned it. So now you have something like queer eye for the straight guy. Right? And so now that's been reappropriated and taken over. Right? Neologism. All right, what else? Would you consider the term clout as a neologism? Because it's like, it still kind of means the same thing. It's been around in its current indication. I mean, as in someone having power or somebody having influence. Yeah, that, that definition's been around for a long time now. It's not so much a neologism. What about, like, terms you guys use? Yeah. Cake. As in? Oh, yeah. So there's cake you eat, and then there's, like, a nice part. <laughs> right? So, in describing, this is, and we're getting to another aspect of neologisms, which emojis have, have, have introduced an entire field of neologisms. Right? Because a peach is no longer a peach. 
<laughs> right? Like a peach is no longer a peach. Eggplant is definitely not an eggplant. <laughs> Right? Get out of your nose. <laughs> this stuff fascinates me. Language, and it's a good thing that I have this job. Language fascinates me. Like I love literature and I love the, you know talking about poetry and things like that. But much more so, I love how language works. And I think that it's brilliant. I think that it's amazing. One of the terms that is a negative term for neologisms is slang. Slang is neologisms. Because isn't that exactly what neologisms are? Isn't that exactly what slang is? If you take an old word and now it's got a completely new meaning or you create an entirely new word. And so the, the people who want everyone to speak correctly and properly and all of that, they'll call it slang. And you don't use slang in here. Because I still wear pantaloons. <laughs> How dare you shorten pantaloons into the <coughs> terrible word pants. Only the lowest of the low would use pants instead of pantaloons. And that was actually um, several people writing about that over the years. When that word came out, when people were shortening pantaloons to pants, and they called it an, a vulgarism that showed only the lowest class of people would use such a vulgarism as pants. Yeah, those people are idiots. <laughs> Across the board. All language is equal as long as it communicates well. Period. That, I mean, that's just an opposite. If your communication, if the words you use communicate your experience, your world, remember, our words define our world. So if your words convey to someone else your world in a manner in which they intimately understand, then it is amazing, perfect language. So neologism is a more technical term, and it takes away the negative stigma of something like slang. So I'll give you one. Here's a, a, an established word that's been around for a very long time that now has a completely different meaning. <coughs> T. <laughs> Uh-huh, what's the tea, sis? You're gonna go spill the tea. It's piping hot tea. Oh yes. Oh yes. So much tea. What are you talking about? Wait, you don't know what tea is? No, the only tea I know is Okay. It's gossip. It's gossip. It's gossip. You've got, you've got some information, you've got some like, oh my god, when you see it after class, i got some tea for you. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, vulgarism. Oh my god, yeah. I can't believe anyone. The only time for tea is 4 p.m., alright? That is tea time. And that is the only time that you can have tea. Oh my god. When I'm wearing my pantaloons. That's right. When I have my pantaloons, uh, I'll sit down at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for my afternoon tea. Yeah. Right. Yes, of course. Right. So, T, a very recent neologism. I think this is a good one. 
It is a good one. It is fun. And it's also, but what happens here is you have to define your world as being separate from the people around you who are of different generations. So teenagers are very often the beginning point of most neologisms because you're redefining your world. You're saying, I don't want to speak the same as the adults around me. You're doing this subconsciously. You're not actually having this entire little metaphysical, if, if you will, metacognitive conversation with yourself. You're like, but you start using language so that you differentiate your experience of the world. Your experience of the world is different than your parents. And your parents have taught you the way to speak, and your teachers tell you how to speak. So you're coming up with new ways to speak to redefine your experience. This is a psycholinguistic process. Right? Beef. It's not what's for dinner. Right? I mean, it could be. It could be what's for dinner. But now, if you've got beef, it is a, it is a completely different thing than if you are sitting down to meatloaf. I don't even know what that would be on the scale of beef. Gotten all the way to mashed beef. <laughs> now it's just like somebody's all beat up in their meatloaf. I don't know. It's a weird way that language would work, right? And so beef. Somebody's got beef. They got beef. Somebody's beef. He's starting beef. 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 All the different ways in which beef is being used. That is an neologism because it's an established word that now has a completely different meaning. Shit. So is it? Um, so like all these like tea and beef, like they could all. They can still be used in the regular sense. Exactly. So is it just with context that they're considered a neologism? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Right? So we're talking about the neologistic, ooh, there's a fun word, the neologistic meaning of these words. Right? So if you're talking about it and you say beef or you say tea, so within your conversations, within your friend circles, right, you would hear if somebody has tea, and if somebody asks you if you've got tea, but then an adult hears it, and an adult has no idea, and you're going, exactly. <laughs> because obviously, the general perception of teenagers is that adults have no idea. So you create language and use language that makes it feel like they don't have any idea. Well, your kids love that. <laughs> <laughs> My kids know that I love this stuff. <laughs> I don't use it. <laughs> like when you touch your kids, you like add emojis. Very rarely. Very rarely. That's not... It's not. Adult usage of emojis is bizarre at best. Because it's hit and miss. Because you have already created all of these nuances of meaning for, me for emojis. Uh, above and beyond things like peaches and eggplants and things along those lines. What's really fascinating to me is the level to which you go to try and decode emojis. Don't lie to me. I know you do. Right? So, for example, that initial text exchanged between you and a crush. And then one, are you at the emoji stage and what emojis are going to be okay? And what does that emoji mean if he used this emoji or he used multiple of these emojis? Because one emoji might mean one thing, but a bunch of emojis might mean another. And there was an emoji with it, but these two were used together. Now it's like hieroglyphics. It is... 
It is pictographs because now you're like, well, standalone, like in Chinese, you might have a, a character in Chinese that means one thing, but when it's placed next to another character, this character has its own meaning, this character has its own meaning, but when you put the two characters together, when you put the two characters together, then it has a new meaning. And so, with the emojis, you're having the same thing. And the way of, of, of stressing and worrying <coughs> about... <coughs> God, this sinus infection is killing me. <coughs> As you're worrying about the interpretation of those emojis. Right? So, what does a variation of a winking emoji mean? Right? Oh, no, 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 no. not an actual thing when you're trying to decode the language. And then there's all of the infinite variations of neologisms that have come around because of text messaging. Right? All sorts of abbreviations and things along those lines that are all neologisms. Our words define our world. And so you have these words that have now become part of the conversation that are now becoming part of their spoken conversation. You have something like hashtag. Right? And that, that, that filled the lexical gap. Because what are you going to call those things that we are now able to attach at the end of our messages so that if we want to follow a particular event, we can just click on that one thing and then see all of the related tweets or posts that go along with that. <coughs> we had to have a term for it. That symbol was the pound symbol. Right? When I was growing up, it was on the telephone and that was the pound symbol. You had star and you had pound. And if you, if you called some sort of automated system, and you would press pound for this, and that was the pound symbol. Nobody calls it pound symbol anymore. Right? It's now the hashtag. And now, semi, ironically, and this is one of the interesting things about language, uh, you bring that into conversations and you say it out loud. Right? And is it meant seriously the vast majority of the time? Absolutely not. It's part of the inside joke of this is how we communicate now. So you're not using it seriously. So if you're talking and you're like, hashtag blast, right? <laughs> right? So if somebody says something like that, it is, an inst it is a way of saying, we get it. Right? Now you're in like, the joking aspect of like, hashtag this. Is anyone actually, this would be the problem with, with an adult using it in a conversation is an adult would try and use it in some sort of meaningful way. Missing that the entire purpose of it is for it to not be meaningful. To be on some level of a joke. That would be the problem. An adult using it in the improper way. Once again, you as teenagers want to define your world. And you want to define your world as different from the world of the adults around you. So, your words define your world. This is sociolinguistics. It's fascinating stuff. Alright, so, dystopias. Okay, dystopias, all, think about all the different dystopian novels that you've had to read. <clears throat> A whole lot of them, right? Just last year. Just last year. <clears throat> Fahrenheit 451? 1984? Brave New World. Uh, three, 
dystopian novels that were on the reading list in general for 10th grade. Okay? So when you look at those, each one of those, you have neologisms that are introduced. Because if it's dystopian, it's a new world. You have to redefine the world. So if you are a group, for example, Ingsol, 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 Insoc, that's what it was. Insoc. And what was their entire new language? New speak. New speak. Right? And so new speak was going to redefine the world because by taking out words and by taking things out and shortening words and condensing them, you're condensing the way people think. You are redefining their world. And so then you have like this whole entire systemic government way of doing this, and that's part of propaganda, and that happens all over the place. Then you have something like uh, Brave New World, and you've got things like Soma, you've got Pneumatic Girls, you've got uh, Feelies, you've got all these other things. But now there is a hierarchy, a stratification of society that is created through the neologisms. Right? So you have Alpha Plus, and you have alphas, and then you have betas, and then you have deltas, and then you have epsilons, right? And that gives you a perfect stratification of society, right? And it's by terminology. And then you have savages, and they're, they're not even on the scale. Uh, going back to middle school, for all of you who read The Giver, and all of the neologisms in The Giver, and Jonah goes to his father and he says to his Jonas goes to his father and says, Do you love me? Huh, Jonas. Why would you ever use a word like that? Precision of language. Love is not a very precise word. Do I appreciate you? Do I enjoy spending time with you? Are you someone I admire? Then yes, yes, and yes, those are all correct. But love, that's not very precise. So they've removed the word love from their dictionary. So that when someone is released, another neologism, you're not going to be upset because there's no love. So dystopian novels show this all the time. So in The Handmaid's Tale, let's make a list. We're working on our notes together today. So that what are some of the terms that are neologisms in The Handmaid's Tale? Just start thinking of some of these words in the book. Like, What were some of the words in the book that would be neologisms? Start us off. Salvaging. Ugh. All right. And what happens after salvaging? It's so that gets killed. Well, and that's so we'll come to that one in a second. So salvaging instead of salvation, right? It's salvaging. I'm going to change the word around, and now someone's going to be killed. And then a variation on that would be David. <laughs> Participation. So now we have a neologism that's a portmanteau of participation and execution. So it's a participation. <laughs> Emma's over here. I like that. I know. I'm teasing now. That sounds cool. Let's do it. I want to go to a participation. Let's go. Right. And that's the whole effect, like, if you create new words, the, the word is a blank canvas. This is what neologisms do, they create a blank canvas and now you can create new meaning. Because the word doesn't have meaning. Which is why it's so it's a common factor in dystopian stories. Yes? 
All right, so a whole categorization here, a stratification. So when we talk about strata, we're talking about layers, right? And so the stratification of women within society. So for women, right? Uh, let's do this in a hierarchical standard here. So we'll start at the, the top of the strata. What's the highest level that a woman can achieve? No, not a handmaid. No, that's not the highest level, buddy. Highest level. Wives. Right. Because being a wife, being a wife is the highest thing a woman can achieve. What about aunts? That's not going to be high on the, on the status symbol. That's not high on the status symbol, right? So we got wives. Right? Next. We're going to come to that in a second. But let's, let's make the list of Martha's, which is a fun one. <clears throat> Why were they called Martha's? It was, in fact, Martha Stewart. Mm -hmm. Martha's in the book are after Martha Stewart because even by this time she was... Um, Stewart. She was publishing her cookbooks and things like that. So... The women's movement was saying women need to get out of the house. You go all the way back to the 19th century and women's rights activists at the time were saying that um, being a wife, because immediately as soon as you're a wife, you've got to have children. And by having children, you are enslaved. You are now attached to the house. You can't leave because you have to take care of the children. So you keep having children because you're not having protected sex of any kind. And so you keep having children, so it's a form of slavery. And so women getting out of the house would be their freedom. And so now you get the 1960s and you get the pill, you get contraception, finally a form of contraception that puts women in control. And now women can decide when they're going to have babies and they can go out. Well, there was a counter movement to redefine being at home and cooking and taking care of children. And it's this mythical elevation of mommies. And no longer are you just the maid around the house. But now it's elevating it. You get fancy magazines about how to take care of your house and how to elevate your house. Martha Stewart living. Right? And now, Pinterest. Which has ruined just being an average, everyday, caring parent. Because now, when you have your first birthday party for your child, it can't just be a first birthday. It's got to be Pinterest worthy and that one year old doesn't give up about any of that okay it used to be in my day you had a birthday party it was your eighth birthday that was it it was just like it's your eighth birthday it might be a sign maybe but that would be about it maybe it was that unfolded happy birthday thing that would be strung across the room and then it's just a, a, a ridiculous amount of sugar a ridiculous amount of absolutely crappy beverages and things like that you know Kool-Aid with like five pounds of sugar in it, whatever. And then you sugar all the kids up, run them around like crazy, feed them some cake, throw some wrapped packages toward one of the kids, and that kid just rips it all apart. Other kids jump in persecution style and opens up all of these things. And then you send them on home, and hopefully they have a sugar crash after they torture their own parents for a little while. And that was it. Now it's got to be friggin' Pinterest-worthy. And it can't just be regular. It's got to be, ooh, another neologism. It's got to be extra. <laughs> Next. So the ants do that? 
Well, they're going to be over here. They're going to be off, off to the side. They exist outside of the structure. Mm -hmm. Right? Then, and how the heck does that happen? Unwomen. I was pretty sure that was just men. <laughs> I mean, you're an, I'm an unwoman. Okay, yes, you are, sir. <laughs> How do you go from being a woman to an unwoman? And that happens, you know, and then they have unbabies. Whatever that is. That was in the book, unbabies. Yeah, what are unbabies? Adults. <laughs> I am an unbaby. You may not treat me like a baby anymore. I am an unbaby. Alright, so now it's an official stratification of women in society by giving titles and by giving them specific, like, this is what you're, it's a caste system. It's a caste system. Like, this is what you are. This is who you are. This is what you are, no matter what. What are some of the other neologisms in the book? <laughs> that one cracks me up because when I was a kid, there was bookmobiles. And now there are birthmobiles. Birthmobile comes running around, pop out a kid, keep going. Oh, all of the variations of redefining words that had already existed. Eyes, guardians, angels, all of those. Oh, there's a one for you, right? Ceremony. And I think it's capitalized most of the time in the book. The ceremony. The commander. We don't actually get any. Oh, wait, we forgot one of the women. Oops, hold on. We forgot one of the groups of women. Oh, yeah, Jezebels. All right, Jezebels. Promiscuous women. Term from the Bible for promiscuous women is Jezebel. So they would use that for Moira and the others who were at the club, the Jezebels. And we forgot about it because those are the ones you don't talk about. Ceremony. What was the other one that just came up? Commander. Oh, yeah. Command. We don't have that many ones for men, right? That commander. And then it's eyes and guardians and things along those lines. I have a question. Was the commander, was that just Kurtel or was every man called the commander? No, just certain men who were higher in society. Okay. Right. Here's one of my favorites. Soul scrolls. Yeah. And what is beautiful about this one is what it means now to me. Like reading it now. Like I read this book first time in 94 or so. I was a freshman, freshman, sophomore in college. And so I was just like, what? And I was imagining the old dot matrix printers and, it, and that's what it was in the book, right? Like it was like, okay. But now, soul scrolls?
Thoughts and prayers. A tragedy strikes, and then your Twitter feed becomes a soul scroll. Anytime now, soul scrolls now, it's just like anytime there is Now it's just whatever's trending. Whatever hashtag is trending currently. That wasn't even a term. I'm sorry? No, not really. I don't remember them getting a name. Yeah. Yeah, but they weren't given names because they, they were going to earn one of those terms, right? Oh, it's a transition thing. Yeah, exactly. They're in the pupa stage, if you will. Have a good day, ladies and gentlemen.